Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we've got some Busan Film Festival news, Manhunt getting a premiere at Venice and Toronto, a new cinema report on Cinema City JP, and our films for this week, the Monkey King saga continues with Wukong, and so does Wu Jing's saga in Wolf Warrior 2. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida and coming to us from his news desk inside the Monkey King's ear is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. How's it going, everybody? All right, sir. You are doing well. Busy as always. Just, yeah, I mean, I was telling you before the show that I've never been this busy for this long. I think I just got an offer to do my subtitle my 10th film of the year mm. are, are, are you um, so going for like that's... a guinness book of world records for most <laughs> subtitles ever no 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 i mean no no i mean a film a month isn't really that busy for I, I think someone who does this for a living um but i've never had this many films i think in one year um and some of these films i mean aren't you know ready for premiere and i can't really talk about some of these films but some of them are are quite exciting really really exciting titles that i can't wait to share um but yeah no it's been it's just this has been great um so i can't really complain but that really hinders my work on asia and cinema i thought that things were kind of slowing down i thought i had some time to to do the site and then turns out everything it's almost like an industry conspiracy to stop me from running the site mm. I don't know. I'm, I'm just saying. I mean, I don't think it's real because I don't think these people actually know I have a site. But um, yeah, it, it's just been so. If anyone wonders um, why the site has been updated in like a month or two now, it's because it, it's just I can't even find the time to write the story. Seriously, it's how bad it is right now. Well, it's better to be too busy with paying work. That's to be sure. <laughs> um, you know, I guess some people out there would be wondering too. Maybe they're thinking about possibly getting into the doing uh, subtitling as a freelance job or perhaps a career. Is it like other forms of writing, say, like uh, if you were doing freelance news writing where you get paid per word, or how, how does that kind of thing work? Well, I, I don't just do subtitling. So my what I do is I actually do a, all sorts of translation work from something as small as a press release up to maybe product production notes or something like a synopsis. Actually, that's usually the bulk of my Chinese uh, freelance work. You know, sometimes I get lucky, I get a script translation job. Those are very big, um, and 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 then subtitling. Subtitling I used to get very little, but this year I've it's been picking up quite quite well. Um, yeah, uh, for the payment, I mean, it really depends. Some people, I personally prefer to not do a work count. Because then it seems like then I start thinking about per word rate and it just gets really sad because there's so many. Well, in subtitling, you charge per line. 
because you get an Excel file and you know how many lines the film has. And and sometimes you could do a per. I, I've been asked to do a per line rate, but sometimes I prefer to just give a flat rate because then there will be because um, um, then that that kind of clears up the whole thing whether um, which am I call it uh, revisions should be included and stuff like that. I just give a flat rate. I say I include all revisions needed. Then that's it. Um, script translation same. Like if, if I can see the kind of the length of the script, it depends on the time I get. And yeah, I I prefer a flat rate because I think sort of per something rate. Um, then it gets complicated. If you get too mathematical, then it gets complicated when the time comes when it turns out that your first draft wasn't that good and they want uh, want, a, want a revision, and then, you know, a flat rate just simplifies everything for me. Yeah, and I, I guess it's pretty, when you're doing a script, it's because it's got a very fairly standard format, you know if it's, you know, going to be around 90 pages or so for 90 minutes, approximately well, no. how long it's going to take, right? Well, no, because actually Chinese scripts can be very deceptive. Um, uh, English scripts are, are very, very strictly formatted. There's a very strict format to it, and there's a whole software that even even does that whole that whole uh, formatting for you, right? That's um, that's final, final draft, final draft, right? Yes, but Chinese scripts they can be very deceptive. You can get I could get something that's like. 90 pages but it's very spaced out it's sparsely spaced out so it actually comes out to be a to be a bit shorter because and right now i'm doing one script where one page it roughly equals to about two pages in english but i've received a page a, a, a script that's 64 pages in chinese turned out to be like 150 pages in english because they space everything so tightly mm-hmm. so so word count for chi- for scripts word count is the one you really want to go by right right yeah, I can imagine, you know, there's like, yeah, it's only a, it's only about 40 pages and they've put it like in 0.5 font or something, right? Yes, I've <laughs> been kind of deceptive before. I've been I've been deceived before. Sorry, it's deceptive. What the hell? I, I've been deceived before. Yeah, I've been deceived before. Tell me, oh, okay, yeah, it's only like 50 pages. It's great. I'm like, okay. And then I look at it, it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> Those are awfully tight lines. So I, yeah. I think that's a word, right? Decepted. Isn't that like the opposite of incepted where... Is that inception is a word? No, inception is not a word. Again, I'm a professional English language writer. Yeah. All right. And you believe it. We believe it. Yes, we we put our faith in uh, Mr. Ma. But we're not here just to talk about scripts and that kind of stuff. We are here to actually talk about movies. But before we get on to that, with our uh, sort of a double East Screen feature this week, we are going to be talking about some news. So once again, back over to Kevin at his news desk with this week's news. Here at the news desk, a um, bit of a quiet week, um, but you know, qu- a couple of uh, worthwhile news. Uh, first of all, Busan Film International Film Festival. I might have talked about this before, but the Busan International Film Festival has been in uh, quite a bit of trouble in the last couple of years. Um, it all started when they s- decided to show this documentary named um, uh, what was it called? The Truth Shall Shall. Let's see. It was about the Seawall sinking. Um, uh, and it was so it was controversial because it was uh, a film that criticized the government over its role in the sinking of this boat called the Sewo. So um, uh, the which which a lot of people blame the conservative government for not, or handling uh, incorrectly or not in the best way. So the the festival um, in 2014 showed this documentary called "The Truth Shall Not Sink" with Sewo, which um, 
indirectly accuses the government of not using every technology possible to rescue um, the people that were trapped in this boat called the Sewo. It's essentially it's like the 9/11 of Korea. It's such a disaster. It was it was a disaster that that has such a effect in Korean society, especially because um, this boat, the people that most of the people that died in this boat were high school students, and it really had a lingering effect in Korean society, and it really raised a lot of questions about the government and it was really such a major major tragedy that multiple films even to this day still sort of have have references to that disaster um anyway when the film showed in busan the it upset the local um conservative government and the festival director was eventually ousted uh, through political persecution and the festival um, uh, the festival's public fun- funding was cut and there was a huge mess and a lot of people were angry about how the government essentially tried to get rid of everyone who was in charge of the festival at that time for showing the film um, and so what happened was that the festival director was ousted and the old one of the old festival founders Kim Dong-ho came back uh, had to come back to take over, and also um, they appointed uh, an actress named Kang Soo Young as the festival director, who was the co-festival director when uh, when uh, Lee Yong Guan was still around. But then once Lee Yong Guan was ousted, Kang Soo Young came and and took over the spot on her own. Now, uh, it seemed like things were get were, were were turning for the better because uh, uh, the conservative government, as you know from the news, was uh, ousted because of the Park Geun-hye scandal. Um, a new uh, liberal president took over. Um, that guy exposed, well, he pers- prosecuted um, uh, bureaucrats who were in charge of this blacklist of artists that was that the, that the Park Geun-hye administration created for being critical of the government. So it's, and it seemed like the the film the film world was you know having some hope again because things were being you know turning for the better. Um, but last week, uh, a team of staff at the Busan International Film Festival. Now, actually, back in sorry, it, it seems this is a long story. Back in, of course, more turmoil followed. It it, it seemed like it never really died down. Um, the deputy festival director Kim Ji Sook, who is one of the founders of the, one of the establishing members of the festival, died of a heart attack in Cannes this year, and that threw everything out of balance again. Because then you have the whole all the programmers sort of now everyone's sort of scrambling to to program the festival without one of its leaders. Um, and then last week, a group of staff from the festival wrote a public memo um, criticizing Kim Dong-ho, the, the one, the old guy who came back and also Kang Soo-young, the current director of the festival, um, for not being tough enough on the conservative government, um, to apologize, the city government to apologize to the festival and to take responsibility for what's happened the last few years. Um, and of course there's been rumblings about this. I've heard plenty of gossip about this, a lot of it off the record. So I can't talk about it here, but I've heard a lot of rumors about, about the satisfactions and how, um, Last year, a lot of filmmakers in Korea actually boycotted the festival because the festival never took a harder position in forcing the conservative government to admit that it had any fault in what's happened to the festival. Um, so a day after this, it seemed like it seemed like um, it was quite a shock when the, when the staff, after all these years, finally decided they had to, they wanted to write this memo to expose to tell the public that that this was happening to 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 essentially. Um, uh, put its leaders out to dry. Um, 
which is like it's really shocking because one it's been a couple of years and you think that they had plenty of chances to do it but they have it they didn't and also it just seemed like something that you wouldn't do in such a culture you know where the boss and and the hierarchy is so important and it, it was like who is a coup d'etat essentially uh so the day after um Kim Dong-ho and Kang Soo-young, they, they, without admitting any fault, they just announced their resignation from the festival. They say they will resign after the closing ceremony of this year's festival. So uh, that actually even throws the festival into a bigger mess because, first of all, one, the founding member, one of the founding members who kind of held it all together through the storm, Kim Ji-sook, he died. And now you got these two leaders leading. So now, after this year's festival is over, there will be essentially no leader which means it's going to be Game of Thrones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's Game of Thrones without the king. And no dragons. If the king is, and, well, someone's going to have dragons. Someone is probably breeding, breeding dragons. I don't know. But now you're going to have all these people, all these, all, these, all these programs, all these executives in the festival probably scrambling and fighting to take the top spot. And who knows what's going to happen. Um, anyway, the festival will go on as scheduled this year, but it's hard to tell because it still hasn't forced the, the city government to apologize to, to, to admit that it, it essentially used political persecution to, 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 to put pressure on the festival since that hasn't happened yet. And nor has the city government apologized for what's happened. Who knows if the the film, the local filmmakers will continue to boycott this year's festival. And of course, then you have the whole uh, one only one year to essentially find a whole team of leaders, up, um, uh, executives to take over a festival, and that's going to be incredibly tough. And th- it's kind of, um, yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's a shame because I mean, the Busan has in in twenty years has done a lot to become essentially Asia's biggest festival in terms of size, uh, attendance, and cinemas. I went for the first time last year. It's an incredibly well-coordinated film festival. Um, essentially, I go to film festival around Asia, and then I get jealous because I was like, why can't this happen in Hong Kong? Why can't this happen in Hong Kong? And Busan is one of those festivals where I watch and I see, like, why can't all of this happen in Hong Kong? All of this happen in Hong Kong, except for the messy, messy upper-level wrangling. I was, I was looking at from an audience point of view. I was like, why can't Hong Kong Film Festival do all of this? Um, so it's a it's a very it's a great festival for the audience, and it's a shame that this has been sort of dragged down by all these political wranglings and all this stuff. Yeah, sounds like it's the makings of a great soap opera. And uh, I guess if there is going to be dragons, it should be uh, Jun Ji Hun as uh, the mother of dragons, right? <laughs> <laughs> we, they, they've already tried they've already tried having an actress as a festival director and look what's happened mm. so no more i don't think they're gonna try actors anymore to lead the festival but now even they even pushed up kim dong-ho was the godfather of busan but what happened was that essentially kim dong-ho this guy who was a founding member he retired but then he retired to go be a consultant in in park Geun-hye's government so no one a lot of people you know there was a whole whole layer of distrust already because they thought that he essentially was there to appease the government um and and according to the staff's memo it seemed like some of that that suspicion was was confirmed um so who knows what's going to happen to the festival now and and yeah like i said it's game of thrones all over again right yeah and as uh, kevin said on the last episode you know film is political so there you have it what are you gonna do can't take the politics out of film 
All right. Uh, some Hong Kong film news, right? Or Chinese film news with Manhunt. Oh, are you going to call John Woo's new film a Chinese film? Okay, it's made of Chinese. <laughs> it's a Hong Kong China co-production, right? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, John Woo's new film, Manhunt, which I'm incredibly excited about because this is John Woo's return to the action genre. Not not action with spears and horses and period costumes or people on boats. It is a down, is an outright contemporary action film with people with guns and man bonding. Yeah, it's coming. Um, it's going to have its world premiere in Venice uh, at the end of this month or actually early next month. And it was just announced right before we started recording this episode that it's going to have its North American premiere in Toronto uh, in uh, a week after that. Uh, so so it's I mean, because the film was actually announced, first announced to to be released in Lunar New Year. But as I reported before, that that film is being now is being pushed up because of all the competition in in Lunar New Year. So now it seems like, according to rumors from China, we're going to get the film uh, in in Hong Kong and in China at the end of September. Although it hasn't been confirmed yet. Um, but from the looks of the festival premieres, Venice, Toronto, it seems like um, they're trying to do this festival platform rollout um, right in time for the theatrical release. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly excited about this film. Uh, unfortunately, I'm sure that it's been sold to North America, but no idea who it's been sold to. It doesn't seem like there's going to be a date and date release because, I mean, it's a John Woo film. Um, I'm sure some uh, distributors probably snagged it up already and and will find some other plan for it instead of doing the usual Chinese day and date release kind of strategy. Um, so who knows when that's going to happen. But um, yeah, if you are in North America or in Italy, uh, please go try and uh, catch the film in Venice or Toronto. Are you going to be at either of those festivals? No, no. I My next festival is Busan. Um, I, don't, I don't get invited to to these overseas festivals much i mean one one day i would try and make it out to toronto i mean it, it's another one of those big perhaps audience friendly festival but no i mean it's 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 too expensive too far and takes too much time so yeah uh, i'm just gonna have to wait it out and uh try and see the film here in hong kong all right our final bit of news this week a cinema report uh, we talked i think a couple weeks back on uh, the cinema city jp being built right um, yeah, I might have mentioned it. I'm not sure. But yeah, this is because I don't really have news to talk about. So, <laughs> so I'm going to talk about cinema. Cinema JP, well, Cin- Cin- Cinema City is the chain that's uh, run by Pegasus Entertainment, which is uh, Raymond Wong's company. Um, they first took over the Langham Place Cinema, which uh, is was and is still now Hong Kong's highest grossing cinema because it's right in the heart of Hong Kong and it's in the middle of a very big mall, very popular mall. Um, and... Uh, this year, they're doing a major, major expansion. They just opened the cinema uh, last month in Chai Wan, which is at the edge of Hong Kong Island, uh, the east end of Hong Kong Island. And it's the, the first theater to hit that neighborhood in like two decades. Um, and now they're opening the third theater. They've opened the third theater in Causeway Bay, taking over the very, very large JP Cinema, um, which was previously the jade and pearl cinema back in the 90s and it used to be i think it has two houses that had like a thousand or 800 or 900 seats but now it is in the recent years it shrunk to 390 seats and 290 seats respectively um mcl um the chain by intercontinental took it over ran it for a long time it was a very ses- successful theater 
um, but they decided not to renew the lease because uh, probably rent probably rent increase. But now Cinema City is um, has taken it over and they've just opened it or they're doing a test. It's a soft opening. They soft opened it last week, um, and I went to uh, went to the cinema on the second day of the soft opening to go watch the Korean film Battleship Island. So I got to test the cinema. Um, so what's new about the cinema? New seats. Just, I think they put on a new screen, but it's the same size as the old one. Um, it's one of the biggest cinemas in Hong Kong, and and it's um, so if you're coming, so all, I'm talking about all this because it's for listeners who would like to come to Hong Kong and want to see kind of what theaters we're offering. So I'm just introducing this huge, huge cinema called the JP. Um, and I went to the second house, which has 290 seats. The screen is still very big, and the house is very wide. So um, even if you sit in the front, it's really not that terrible because the, the seats are from above looking down. So you don't have to look up. You, you won't have to hurt your neck even if you're in the front. Um, and um, they replaced their projectors with 4K laser projectors. Now, what does this mean? Because laser projectors, I think, aren't run on light bulbs like the way that pr- traditional projectors are, even digital projectors. So a problem with digital projectors or traditional tr- projector is that the bulbs have a very have a limited lifespan and they get dimmer and dimmer over time so apparently having this laser projector means that the the image is consistently bright for uh, according to the Barco website having 30,000 hours of 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 of, of operation uh, and i think the uh, one of the two houses has been has been re re we which it recalibrated for atmos uh you care about that kind of thing um and uh yeah so i went to test the theater it's the the project the, the projector image is nice very nice um although you know you can't really tell with you won't be able to really tell until it shows a true 4k film the film i watched wasn't in 4k it was in traditional 2k it looked bright enough um but you know not like a radical change from from before the again the screen is incredibly it's very big and the seats are fairly comfortable, and the sound is is excellent. So, um, if you come to Hong Kong, you want to get a big screen experience instead of a hundred seat uh, mall multiplex, then I uh, I suggest the Cinema City JP. Now, Cinema City is actually also now building a second cinema in Causeway Bay. They'll be taking over. I mean, they're moving into a building uh, that's right across the street from Victoria Park, um, on on uh, Sugar Street. Um, and it, it will probably be more like a traditional small screen multiplex, probably with several screens, very small screens. So if you want a big screen experience, don't go to the, the wrong, wrong cinema city. Go check out the JP. Um, I think once everything gets going, I think it will be one of, the, one of the best cinemas in Hong Kong, even though the fact that it only has two screens means that it will only be playing the very, very big films, which means it's not really going to have a lot of choices for people. But if you really want that kind of big screen experience, um, it's certainly uh, recommended. Yeah, or you can just go to the Dynasty. They have two Come screens. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, Andy, serious. I, I, I'm going to put on my serious film buff cap here. As much as we go talk about the Dynasty and we love Dynasty... It's a terrible theater, all right? The screen is dirty. The sound is barely <laughs> digital. It's muffled. The, 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 the female it, bathroom had cameras. No, but seriously, it, seriously. They found cameras in the female bathroom. 
I'm not kidding. Some of the seats are 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 are, are sliced and broken. Uh, people talk. People smoke. Don't, you know, they turn on the phone. It's a terrible cinema, which is why we go watch crappy movies there yeah. because we don't watch good movies at, at Dynasty. We know better than that. But look, if you are listening to this podcast, you're obviously a fan of Asian cinema and likely a fan of Hong Kong cinema. And if you're going to Hong Kong, sure, you can go watch a couple big movies in the upscale stadium seating, you know, nice theaters. And that's a great experience. And it's an experience you're going to get at home. Okay. No way, yes. way, way, way. But if you're going to, if you're going to go all the way to Hong Kong, you, you, you deserve to at least watch one local movie in, in the dynasty. You know, and it's it, it's not as terrible as Kevin makes it out. It's pretty bad, but it's not that bad. I would I would not watch Shockwave or Cold War Two or Monkey King. Like these are films that are made by like real people, like with real investment, like with real you know effort put in. No, like, they're, they're I'm s- not gonna watch. I'm not sure. gonna watch those films. That I'm gonna go to a film a theater where I can get the best out of the experience and where I can get optimized optimize viewing experience sure there's a, is, there's a okay, line there's a, a line film a, a watching film made on a cheap and that's copying 50 other movies yeah sure i'll go watch a dynasty right i would not watch like a seriously like produced well-produced film with good production values even a hong kong film i would not go watch those in the dynasty right like i would rather get like a, a good cinema to actually enhance enhance what you know what's put put in there t- okay. for for optimi- optimal big screen experience if you're gonna watch from vegas to macau four, do it in the dynasty that's all i'm saying i would do it on my i would do it on my <laughs> iphone <laughs> i would do it on my iphone without my earphone so i don't, I don't have to, i don't have to concentrate all right, all right. and if you, if you if you're having difficulty it is a theater that's t-h-e-a uh t-r-e not the western e-r uh theater.com dot hk for the newport cinema circuit if you're if you're actually interested in looking up the dynasty and seeing what films are playing there um and hopefully if you go it'll still be there because i have my doubts <laughs> i have my doubts it's gonna last for long let me mention i haven't been there in months my god i forgot what's playing there actually anyway yeah that's not because not because out of out of like oh i refuse to go to dynasty just because we haven't found anything that's really worth watching there yet or lately so anyway yeah. There you go. Oh, we should have watched Wukong there. It's playing there. Sorry. All right. All right. There you have it. We'll be back after this short musical interlude, and Kevin will be giving us his review of Derek Walk's Wukong. And welcome back. So for our first East Screen film this week, it's back to talk about The Monkey King once again. This time it's Derek Kwok with the film Wukong, led by Eddie Peng. So Kevin, take it away. Paul, I, I already know you're going to have so many questions because I remember when I talked about production of this film, you seemed so confused. 
and, and, and you're going to be even more confused when I tell you what this movie is. Okay. Um, okay. So Wukong is the new film by Derek Kwok. It is based on an internet uh, novel called Wukong. And I'm going to explain what Wukong is in a moment because it's not really a Journey to the West film. There is no Journey to the West. Even though it has characters from Journey to the West, there is no Journey, nor are they going to the West. So, okay, here we go. All right, here's a rough sort of a uh, gist of the story. 500 years ago, the gods in heaven destroyed Manhuaguo, which we know is the, is the home of Sun Wukong. And a monkey named Sun Wukong vows to take revenge uh, after making his way into Tenteng, or you know what we call heaven, where students trained to become immortals. Wukong broke every rule, ignored all the supervision from Buddhas, gods, and fairies, and caused chaos in Tenteng. At the Battle of Jeje Bridge, Wukong... And uh, Erlang and Tempeng, played by Sean Yu and Oho, uh, were dropped into Mount Huaguo, now a barren land being sucked dry by a cloud demon. However, the gods are not done with them just yet. Okay, so what is Wukong? Wukong is um, it's, it's written, it's a spin-off novel, clearly. It's, uh, it's not really a spin-off novel. Okay, it is. But what it is... It is a reimagined tale of pre-monkey King Sun Wukong, and he sort of reinvented as this rebellious monkey, and and the character and the characters and the actual kind of story is more like a homage to both Journey to the West and Jeff Lau's Chinese Odyssey. And we know we all know that Chinese Odyssey is not really truly based on Journey to the West, right? It's just sort of its own spin with characters from Journey to the West. And so Wukong is kind of in that same vein. Um, so the original novel, apparently, is um, is entirely made of first-person storytelling or monologues written in three plot strands. There's one with Sun Wukong, there's one with Erlang, and then there's one with Tempeng, who eventually reincarnates into um, the pig character in Journey to the West. But here he's Tempeng, not, not the reincarnated pig yet. Uh, so it's three different plot strands, and eventually the end converge into one story. But it seems like it's three different plots. Um, but of course, the thing is, these three plot strands don't really make a film because they're all told through monologue. It's first-person narration all the way. So Derek Kwok and the original novelist, along with two other scriptwriters, they wrote a brand new story, which is about uh, Monkey King. Or, well, Sun Wukong. I don't want to say Monkey King because he's not the Monkey King yet in the film. Uh, it's about him essentially rebelling against the heavens, which is now reinvented as this authoritative, big brother-esque, um, uh, like an oppressor almost, um, that rules Earth with an iron grip. And ev- everyone that goes against destiny will be punished and will, s- will experience even greater pain. So heaven is not really heaven. Heaven is more like king right it's more like emperor trying to control fate um even the female lead who is played by nini is named Azi, which is named after jiha in a chinese odyssey she's named after a character in chinese odyssey which does not expl- exist in journey to the west so paul you, you following me so far uh are you somewhat, incredibly somewhat, confused somewhat <laughs> just okay so there is a character a monkey character called sun wukong and he does go and raise a lot of crap in heaven, but it's not what you would expect, what you would imagine heaven to be. And, and first of all, we don't even have a lord, whatever, the lord character that the Chan Fat character played in the Monkey King movie. There is no lord. It's replaced by this 
woman who's like who's like sort of the second who's like middle management i guess <laughs> and she kind of owns heaven she kind of wants to rule over the earth and she would punish everyone who goes against the heaven's will and all, and she reports to a buddha stat a buddha statue in a room and then there's this thing called the destiny astrolabe which controls all of destiny yeah that that, that does not exist in journey to the west does it uh not that i recall does, yeah, he, does so, he steal the peaches and, and get the golden rod and all that stuff or no? There is okay, so there yeah, so there are some elements of the sto- of the character, like he steals a peach at the beginning, but you know, it's more like he's eating peaches and then it's kinda like, Oh, I ate some peach. But um yeah, the rod happens because you know, he does a whole ear waxing and and of course there's that whole Derek Cock obsession with with CG, so Every time the rod is turned into a bigger rod, or turns into a different form, or different size, or or uh, Monkey King ter- or Sun Wukong turns something into his rod again, we we see like every detail of the thing being turned into rod. Like it's almost like he has an obsession with rod, you know, just like it's like a phallic obsession, right? <laughs> or especially with phallic objects, whatever. But um, yeah, so the rod happens, you know, and you got Erlong with the eye of the on the forehead and all that crap. But it, the story itself is definitely not a journey to the West story. It's an original creation, and 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 um, just forget everything you th- kind of remember about heaven and the original tale and all that stuff because this is essentially redone as a story of a, of a rebellious teenager and trying to go against you know authorities, right? Um, but anyway, in China, the film the film was actually lambasted by by a lot of audience because the film totally veered away from the original novel. But honestly, I do not care at all whether it has veered away from the original novel or not because I don't think a novel adaptation has to adhere exactly t- to the text to be good. For example, I watched the, you know I I was a huge fan of Green Mile, and when I watched the film, I wasn't that impressed with it because it was so. It adheres so closely to the novel, and when you adhere so closely to a novel, when the director doesn't doesn't express it the same way you imagine in your head, of course it's going to be bad. So I don't want when I see when I watch a film that's adapted from a novel, I don't exactly want it to to be so faithful to the text, which is fine. So uh, that does not matter for for me when I watch Wukong. Um, so um, a lot of Hong Kongers are actually losing their minds over this film because they think that Derek Kwok is writing about post-Umbrella Revolution Hong Kong. Why? Because uh, it's about you know a rebellious character who's up. It's like a David Goliath story. He's up against this this great big force who um, who will crush you like a bug in a second. But he doesn't care about the consequence. All he cares about is fighting, and he will fight until the very end. He will fight even though it. Uh, um, defeat is almost it's almost um, uh, it's almost absolute. It's almost certain. So a lot of uh, Hong Kongers they're reading into this and they think that Derek Kwok has has made something really brave because he went into China and did a movie about Umbrella Revolution. But the thing is, you know, this this story can really fit into any story about rebellious teenagers who refuse to conform, right? Uh, but you know, the thing is, it's written by a Hong Kong and living in this era, so I guess the glove fits if you want it to fit. Um, if you live outside Hong Kong, you do not, you won't read this as a, a Umbrella Revolution movie. Um, so I, it, it kind of, it, it's kind of open ended, or not open ended, but it, it leaves enough to the imagination so that you could put that into the film, that reading into the film. But like I said, it could fit into any other 
so it, it could be David versus Goliath. I mean, are you going to say David versus Goliath, Goliath is a story written about Umbrella Revolution? Of course not. That's silly. But because it is written in this era, um, Hong Kongers, they see what they want to see. So if they want to read it that way and it makes them enjoy the film more and they, they'll give credit to Derek Kwok for being so so brilliant, then then go ahead. But Derek Kwok will never admit to this. He said, he said this much in interviews. He's never going to admit it because, I mean, he has to keep working in China, right? So he's he said himself that he refused to confirm this theory. So don't expect him to ever confirm the theory. It might as well be actually about a Hong Kong director trying to find artistic integrity in mainland China, right? Like, the, the monkey Sun Wukong could be Derek Kwok. And you could even, yeah, so if you read it that way. You know, you watch Wukong as a story of Derek Kwok trying to make it in mainland China. There you go. Or... Or Stephen Chow could be heaven, and it would be the story of, of Eric Kwok trying to make Journey to the West, conquering the demons, um, while Stephen Chow is in charge. <laughs> so you could read it like that. It's fine. It works. It works. Sure, it works. Because at the end, Derek Kwok didn't really get a directorial credit. He got like a co-director or something, but a lot of his stuff got buried, and Stephen Chow took, took, took over the film. So you could read Wukong as that story. Uh, so you know it, it's really up to you or up to your own bias how you want to read this film um, hitting the gender aside the film is really a bit of a mess um, at the beginning it kind of wants to be a Stephen Chow Monkey King movie with these really exaggerated physical humor almost as if like hey I would have directed hey Stephen Chow maybe you should have done this scene this way that kind of thing um, or he's trying to em- emulate Stephen Chow's brand of comedy in some scenes but then you know, second half of the film becomes super serious with lots and lots of emoting and crying and slow motion. So the pacing is very choppy. So the story, the film is already 130 minutes long, but I don't think it needs to be. And it's really because Derek Kwok keeps slowing the film down because whenever it hits these big dramatic crescendos, um, he really likes to slow it down. You know, there's a scene where one character dies and, you know, the, the whole thing is done in slow motion. Uh, the character dies in someone's arms and in slow motion and then the eyes close and then he puts in a song and the song takes another two minutes so this whole death scene takes like five minutes of the film meanwhile you know it's like it's it's, it's in a major it's a, it's a middle of a major action scene so you're just wondering like is the villain just standing around waiting for you to like finish emoting and then we'll keep fighting like it's just really weird when it really slows down like that um so we know that I know that Derek Kwok has never been great at handling small dramatic dialogue scenes. Um, like he can't really wait to get to these big crescendos. Like he keeps rushing through them, and he keeps over editing the film. Like he maybe he screwed up one part of a shot, so he, he 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 cuts quickly to another to save it, and then he cuts back to the shot. Lots of like cutting where you don't really think it needs to switch angles, but it keeps switching angles. So it's a really choppy film. But the CGI handled by Henry Wong, who he's worked with for a while since, I think, um, what's the firefighter film, Paul? When the lights go out. Lights go out. Yeah. Well, when the lights go out and full strike, and he's you know he's done a super a lot of special effects for Derek Kwok's film. He's handling CGI here, and it's excellent. Um, But the thing is, you know, there's a lot of impressive um, uh, design. But like I said, the thing is, Derek Kwok is so obsessed with details that by the fifth time you see Monkey Sun Wukong making his rod, you're just like, enough already, I get it. I get it. Yeah, he's, he's got a big rod, and he can make <laughs> any shape he wants, and he's going to do it this way. Okay, I get it now. Okay, stop. I get it. He's got a rod. Um, 
so it's just a lot of it's a huge big CGI fest, and the heart of the story really depends on how you read the film. If you're looking for this great love story, there's a love story between Sun Wukong and Aji, but it kind of just jumps out at you halfway through the film, like he has to fall in love. So so by the time it gets to that big emotional crescendo, you're like, I'm not. I didn't really feel for it because I felt it was really manufactured. But he had to build this romance to get to that moment uh but i didn't feel anything for it um and and i didn't really want to read the film as an umbrella revolution film so i wasn't really emotionally engaged with the film so the heart really depends on how you read the film or how you want to read the film um of course eddie pang's acting is turned up to 11 he's screaming all the time just like any sun wukong actor should i mean after all he's playing Derek kwok essentially Derek kwok is essentially putting himself as Sun Wukong. So if Eddie Pang's trying to imitate, if you want to know what Derek Kwok talks like in real life, I know because I listened to his radio program before, and I know how he talks when he, you know, he's really passionate into a film. Um, essentially, if you know Derek, how Derek Kwok talks, Eddie Pang is playing Derek Kwok. Um, so sorry, um, this film doesn't really convince me that Derek Kwok isn't vastly overrated um, here in Hong Kong. I think. Derek Kwok is vastly overrated in some circles. Uh, a lot of Hong Kongers think that he's like the next Pang Hong Chan or something, or the next the next uh, John Woo or something, I, or the next great Hong Kong director. I'm still not convinced. I think he always lets his message get in the way of his films. He has these great big messages and these great ideas, but he's not um, a very competent director in my eyes. Like I, I still think he he's he's still very flawed his films are still very flawed and he's still very choppy he's really still has a lot of work to do um so i still don't think Derek kwok is that big of a deal um but anyway wukong is not that bad but it's definitely not very good and i'm quite biased about monkey king movies as in like i'm really sick of them by now but even then i can acknowledge that monkey king 2 the one with aaron kwok is actually a superior film so if you kind of want to see a different take on Wukong, if you're not familiar with the Journey to the West story and you don't really want to be and you still want to see what the Monkey King is like, this is an interesting film to take in. It is, as I said when we reported the, the, the production of the film, it's, it, it is the Sun Wukong story reinvented as a, as a as a story about rebellious teenagers. And and it's an interesting take on that story, I think. But as a, the resulting product just really could use a lot more polishing before it really gets to something that's really that significant. I mean, just like I said, the story idea is excellent, but it doesn't really do much for me. All right, Paul, questions, questions. Okay. Lay it on me. All right, I've got a list. I've got a list. So I'm still a bit confused. How is this film, I mean, if it's the monkey basically going and training with immortals and, you know, eating the immortal peaches and getting his rod. I mean, do they have the thing where he goes in the, in the pot and cooks and gains immortal, you know, invulnerability? Uh, no, I mean, don't, don't, don't expect the traditional monkey because he has to rot in essentially the first fight scene. He, okay. he makes the rod with his earwax and he just like, and then there it oh, is. So, oh, so he, he just, just makes it. He doesn't go down under the ocean and, he was already immortal. So the thing is, the, the the synopsis shows implies that this whole training process, whatever. But no, I mean the film. He just sort of stuck his way into. In the film, there's this really short five minute introduction about how there was this great monkey demon, and he was you know defeated, and the pieces of him make up 
turn into little monkeys and then you know Mount Huaguo blah 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 and then the gods destroy Mount Huaguo and and then Monkey King wants to go and get revenge and that's the setup and then it goes right into the story where he's stealing peaches but they don't tell you what the peaches are for mm. he's just stealing he's just he is he just if you watch it he's just like okay he's really hungry he really wants to eat the peaches look really great and he just eats the peaches right um right. So there, and then there's whole like sitcomy thing, I guess, where they introduce the characters, and then 40 minutes in, they're down in the real world. So there's not really like a training montage. I mean, the golden, the golden ring, the halo, happens. They put a halo on him, and you know, that works in heaven. But in the real world, down in the mortal world, it doesn't work anymore. So it throws out all that traditional Monkey King stuff. You think the moments you think we expect happen because. He he plays they he they played on people having the knowledge of that stuff like oh okay you know what Sumo Kong can do I'm not gonna go and do an origin story anymore I'm not gonna introduce what he can do he's just gonna do all this stuff right and there's no there's no uh, triptych triptycha or monk the monk uh, Shanzang right there's no monk there is no monk even the pig hasn't been reincarnated yet he's still Tampung and right. Tampung is now this hunk hunk of a guy who had a who had a romance with another another immortal right, right. so there's even he has a love story as a as a hunk okay all right yeah. so 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 i got that part so it's ba it's not simply just like a re uh, a reimagination of the donnie yen monkey king which is havoc in heaven right it's, it's no it's not havoc in heaven it's more all. it's more along the lines of like chinese tall story and then it just kind of expects you to understand who the characters are kind of and then it kind of reinvents them. Right, exactly. I mean, right. it's just, just like how Jeff Lau's films aren't really Journey to the West stories, right? Right, you right. Know? Yeah. But then I, um, I guess the other question I have here is in terms of the performance between, you know, Eddie Pang as Monkey versus, say, Aaron Kwok as Monkey, even though Eddie's not kind of doing the traditional narrative Monkey here, he's more of a what? He's a, a teenage. A, a Marlon Brando, you know, no, he's like what are you what are you rebelling against? And it's like what do you got? You know, um, but I mean, in terms of the mannerisms, because Monkey as a character has certain mannerisms in in the way he acts, the way he fights, the way he treats other people. Um, is that pretty consistent? And how does that compare with say Aaron's performance in the role? Well, the thing is, Aaron's Aaron is such an over actor that he was really quite suited for the Monkey King. Hmm. I mean, it's almost like the makeup contained him enough, just enough. But then you know the phys his physical performance really shine through, so we don't we can ignore how much he overacts with his face, like so. So it really I think the Monkey King role really fit Aaron. Um, like as I hear, he, there's not so much makeup on Eddie because it's pre Monkey King Sun Wukong, right? There's before he puts on the hair, the really facial hair, and he had to turn his face into a monkey. I mean, he still has facial hair, but he looks more like a human here mm. most of the time. Um, but you know, like I said, he's really pushing up to eleven because he's screaming all the time, and it's essentially he's this brash teenager, right? Arrogant teenager. Um, so it's a different type of performance. It's definitely not as physical as Aaron's, um, and just comes off like a sort of a, a teenage brat. So whether you can like that or not, I mean, that depends. But th like I said, don't. This is not the sort of Monkey King that we're expecting. Um, he does one where you know it's like a Ferris. Bueller Monkey King? I don't know. No, um, no, like a like a James Dean Monkey King. I guess right. I don't know. But um, but it, again, it's all overacting. But I don't think Eddie is really quite fit 
for I mean, Eddie has been struggling to find a role that truly fits him as an actor for a long time now. I mean, he wasn't that fit for Operation Mekong. I don't think he was that fit for. Um, I mean, the last film that that the last film where I saw him and I thought he was quite natural was actually the Last Woman Standing with Shuchi, but turns out that movie wasn't very good at all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, I think he's okay in the role, but I don't think anyone would kind of remember Eddie Pang as Monkey King down the road. Mm-hmm. You did mention that you said the CGI here is um, by Henry Wong is very well done. I mean, in comparison to say Donnie's Monkey King, which was pretty. It was it was pretty much full on green screen all the time, with a few set pieces. But it was pretty terrible, and it doesn't hold up well. Do you think this one holds up well? This one, what the design is a bit different. There are some real sets here. Um, it's not all green screen. Um, it's more like Derek Kwok is very. Um, he's he's in my generation. I read the ones who watch the Dragon Ball anime hmm. and the fights would drag out for like ten weeks. Right. So that's why that's why I talk about this whole thing where he wants every detail of the rod transforming into the rod, right? right. He wants every detail because he's we were this generation who watched who could watch one Dragon Ball fight stretched out to ten weeks at a time. Um, because each you know, if you read the comic <laughs> it's books, like, like a whole episode for, for Goku just to power exactly. up his Kamehameha or something. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, so it's really influenced by that style. Um, but no, it's there there are more real um, real practical sets, but there is also a huge reliance on CG um, still. But the style here is very different from the old monkey. This one is a lot darker, it's a lot more visceral, and it's a lot more um, um, anime and comic um uh influence so the 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 direction it's a lot more um different from the kids friendly monkey king movies And welcome back. So our second East Screen film for the week is Wolf Warrior 2. I had the good fortune of getting out uh, down south to see this. Um, again, the planets aligned once again and allowed me to, to make the trek. And also because they had, I guess, extended the screenings because, as I think Kevin mentioned in the news last week, and is still in the news this week, this film has been um, kicking butt and taking names. Uh, it is uh, broken multiple box office records. I think best opening weekend. I think it's outperformed um the mermaid which was i think the highest had had the top spot for a while um and it's been a bit of a yeah it has doubled the gross of mermaid yeah so doubled so so there you have it it's the 10th is the 10th highest grossing film of all time globally yeah i think so you know and I was, I was, you know, I thought to myself, I need to go and I need to contribute to uh, the Wu Jing Fund here and <laughs> do do my diligence. Um, so we're going to talk about it a little bit about, you know, why it's doing that. Kevin, you haven't gotten out to see this yet because see this yet because it's not playing in Hong Kong. It's not playing in Hong Kong, right? No. Um, at least not yet. Is it scheduled for future release? Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. So uh, sorry, um, I want to correct myself. It's a hundredth. It's the hundredth highest grossing film of all time, and it's the only non Hollywood film to do so. Right. So, I mean, this is this is a pretty amazing story when you think about 
this film and where it's come from. And we'll get into some further discussion of that. Kevin, you have seen the first film, right? Wolf Warriors? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let me talk a little bit about the story. Uh, picking up some three years after the events of Wolf Warriors or Wolf Warrior depending on which poster you're looking at. Um, <laughs> the story finds our protagonist, Lang Fang, booted out of the elite wolf warrior unit and now working on cargo vessels trading between China and Africa. When a military coup occurs, Lang helps some locals to escape to the Chinese embassy. But upon learning that a valued doctor and his godson's mother are both trapped in the combat zone, he takes it upon himself to go out and rescue them. But in doing so, he runs afoul of a dangerous mercenary and his crew. Um, so yes, I get it. I, I, I was skeptical going in, but I understand why this film is kicking butt and taking names and it's because it kicks butt. Um, again, <laughs> I was, I, you know, I watched Wolf Warriors right before going to the screening just to, you know, see, you know, so my expectations were in check. Um, but I got to say first, Wu Jing as director really pulls out all the stops for this film. He goes full on Jackie Chan, but with his own style. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not doing the typical Jackie Chan style of fighting, which was a blend of action and, and comedy. He's definitely just doing his own sort of Wu Jing style. Um, but it's a really nice looking big bug budget actioner. It's basically a China doing a Bourne film for, you know... Uh, all intents and purposes. There are a couple of things here to understand, I think, about how this film is doing what it's doing and why it's so different from the first film. Uh, first, he increases the scale. The film is global, whereas the first film was relegated to China. And it told you so, you know, <laughs> all the time, you know, this is China, this is China, you know. Um, and, and this film kind of, you know, even though they did some location shooting in Africa, um, I think a lot of the set pieces, the factory pieces, which are supposed to be set in Africa, they were actually filming in China. But you get the sense of sort of the global nature uh, of this film. He increases the action um, by a lot. It's not just Wu Jing running through a forest this time. Um, the first film showed you military hardware, but used very little of it. And here they use a lot of it. I mean, he's pretty much in the middle of a revolution in Africa. There are bigger names here. I mean, okay, it's not a huge leap from Scott Atkins to Frank Grillo, but it's a pretty big step. I mean, he was, uh, you know, he was in uh, Captain America Winter Soldier. He played Crossbones in um, Civil, was it, uh, no, Avengers 2, I think. Um, or no, what was it? Civil War, Civil, Civil War. Was he Crossbones? Civil War. In, uh, Civil War, no. that's right, sorry. It's, War. They're, also, they're all merging in my mind. Winter all, Soldier, too, actually. Winter yeah, Soldier. He yeah, started yeah. in Winter Soldier, but he became the villain Crossbones uh, in the beginning of Civil War. Um, you know, so it's, it's bringing in more of that international cast, more of an international appeal. And it's fun, and it's funny at times. I mean, it's got some good bits of humor. It's not just all so serious, you know, rah-rah gung-ho action um so the action is fun the opening fight sequence um i you know as i sat down and, and they start things off just kind of made me say wow it's this whole thing that kind of takes place underwater they're trying to do it as a they're trying to make it look like a single take this this massive fight scene underwater the camera's kind of zooming around if you know a little bit about film technique you can kind of see where 
you know, they pass by someone and it's an obvious edit point. They're using some CGI to probably enhance the editing, but it looks great. I mean, it's a really well done um, action piece underwater and you know they do some outtakes at the end and you see the guys you see like wujing underwater with like a couple scuba guys you know helping him breathe and then i mean that's old school like james bond underwater fight scene stuff that um you don't see a lot of today and it's it's great to see that kind of thing that kind of creativity that kind of you know old school imagination being used again and kind of mixed with modern film techniques um, the performances do vary. I mean, this is an action movie. Uh, think of, again, a Jackie Chan movie with an international cast, and you're kind of in the ballpark of what you can expect. You you know, you have some people who can bring some heavy-duty charisma to the screen, and you have other people who are kind of just reading lines at times. But overall, you know, it's got that level of, of feel and quality to it. Um, I know that a lot of people are down on the original film, Wolf Warrior or Wolf Warriors. I didn't think it was a terrible film. It certainly had its problems. I felt it was a step up from his first directorial, you know, work, which was Legendary Assassin in 2008. Um, so I think between 2008, between Wolf Warriors and between this, what you're being shown here is evidence that Wu Jing does have a talent for action direction and can show significant improvement over time. He's able to take ideas, he's able to build on them, and to make things more entertaining um, by learning from his mistakes or learning, you know, how to approach things differently uh, as he goes on to his next film. As a standalone film, if you've not seen the original War Wolf Warriors, um, it's fine. It The narrative does carry through. They do have some flashbacks to the first film um, to fill in some of the gaps so you don't really need to see it, but it you know, why not? It's it's out there. It's easily available. It's on, um, <clears throat> you can rent it on Amazon um, very easily. Uh, it's not on Netflix, but, you know, it's it's out there to stream for a couple bucks. Uh, there is a slight narrative time jump in the beginning, which was a little bit disorienting because I wasn't really sure, um, but you kind of figured that out over time, how to, how to fill in the the, the time period gaps there that they're as they're trying to unfold this story. On the theoretical side of things, though, this is where things are getting a little bit interesting. If you're interested in sort of the academic side, there's been a couple articles written. There's one that I'm citing here from Professor Tansy Cam on Facebook who pointed out the article. It's not from him, but it's a Ming Pao review of the film that's um, in Chinese. I'll, I'll link to it, but it's in Chinese. And you either need to read Chinese or have somebody who can help translate for you to, to really get the gist of it. But basically, it's talking about the film in respect to Hollywood films that were criticized of something called the white man's burden or white guilt. And the shift of that from that to what the art author is calling yellow guilt here. Um, and that was one of the things I was exactly thinking as I'm watching this, because you basically have... You know, China is the dominant force here in Africa, and they are very, you know, this is this is reality. They are um, very present in Africa right now as we speak. Um, but here, the action physicality of Wu Jing going in and not only saving Chinese, but um, decimating lots of, you know, faceless African villains, but also saving lots of African innocents as well. 
Um, so there's this idea of pointing to that kind of old Hollywood archetype as now being transferred over to the Chinese hero, as it were. Um, and it's also does not helpful that the most significant black African characters you have in this film uh, on the screen are a kid named Tundu, um, who he's got a very long South African name that I won't try and mutilate here. Um, he is kind of the godson of Wu Jing's character. Um, you know, he, he's kind of the typical street kid, you know, who Wu Jing's trying to help set right kind of thing. He gets kind of caught up in this and Wu Jing's protecting him for a bit. And his mom, who Wu Jing then offers to go out and sort of help rescue as a key point in the plot. And she's a somewhat heavy set African woman who sings Amazing Grace at one point. I mean, oh, you, God. You, you know, you start to get into the into the, okay, uh, it's a little stereotypical there. Um, but they really have, in terms of African actors, the most screen presence, and it's not a lot of screen presence. Pretty much everyone else who gets a lot of screen time, a lot of dialogue, is either white or Chinese. Um, so that could be leveled as a criticism, since this is a film that's taking place in China. You know, that, Could there not have been a, a, a person of action who was you know African also fighting on the side of good or something? Um, so yes, you can read into that kind of, of message there and do you know take forward that kind of analysis. But it does also have a message about sticking together. There's a, a scene later in the film where um, one of the factory managers basically he wants to separate out the Chinese f workers from the African workers, you know, and it's like he wants to just save the Chinese people. And you know they come through with this message of right from wrong and and the right thing to do, um, which I think is nice. Uh, in terms of the other actors here, I mentioned Frank Grillo. You also have Selena Jade, who played Shadow on the CW series Arrow. And she has a somewhat typical role, female doctor, who is able to help the protagonist out in a key moment. But she often kind of needs saving herself. Um, again, a lot of these common criticisms, criticisms, I think, can be levied at any major uh, Hollywood action or out there, even today, and certainly the ones of old. Um, so, you know, getting us getting, getting, thinking of this in terms of growing pains for, you know, big Chinese action cinema, I think it's, you know, points that you can point out, but they're, they shouldn't be taken in, in overly critical ways. Um, like the actioners of old though, in, in terms of some of the action technical points, people can get shot, they can get stabbed multiple times and they can just keep kicking, right? Cause these are, are super villains and supermen basically. Um, there's a great shot of Wu Jing shirtless on the beach in fine physical form, I must say. And I think they're playing ball or volleyball or something. But you guys, you kind of forgot that he was shot twice and stabbed in the last movie and should have some pretty massive scarring. There is no scarring in China, right? I can, I can, hear, I can hear Tom Hanks kind of sh shouting from League of the Run. There's no scarring in China. Um, you know, <clears throat> again, a minor point. You know, they wanted to show some beefcake in that um and remembering too that Wu Jing was a sniper character that was kind of his claim to fame in the first film what got him moved over to the wolf warrior unit he never really gets to snipe here and you know I, he didn't really get to snipe much in the first film either it, here he's just you know kind of a, a master of all uh special ops guy now even though he's no longer in it you know he's just got the, the skills it's like Again, very much a Bourne-style character or a James Bond-style character. Um, 
But of course, we do have to talk a little bit about the nationalism. That was a, a pretty big criticism of the first film. And I would say that going into this, as much as I'd heard about this film being talked about before I saw it, for me, I felt it was surprisingly toned down compared to the first film. Um, the first film really felt more to me like a big marketing ad for joining the Chinese military more than anything else. Um, you know, and you, they have stuff like that here in the States, to be fair. I mean, they have things that are geared to, you know, get kids out there and get them excited about going to join the Marines or the army or that kind of thing. Um, I recall in, in one of the classes, I've got a clip from a Republic of China, Taiwan ad that basically shows these transformer like machines helping out the Taiwanese army and it's it's just a big advertisement to get kids to join so that kind of stuff is common uh, you know across the board but with this one um, you know yeah it, the nationalism the patriotism there but Wu Jing is no longer a part of the military and so here you have the idea I mean the first one especially under the title of wolf warriors you have that plural because it wasn't just him, even though there was a lot of focus on him. There were other people in the unit. But here, it's he's the one-man show. I mean, he's got the support of the Chinese Navy at certain points, but he, he, he is, you know, the, the lone wolf in this case. And so it is Wolf Warrior 2, um, very specifically. And him not being an official part of the military is a big reason why he's given a lot of the leeway that he has in the film. So, um, but... There are moments, again, that are very much in your face. One involves a China flag, um, which I think, you know, it, it's used as a device in the moment um, as, as in sort of a practical manner, but it is kind of there. So I thought that that was okay, we get it, but it, it was okay. It, it suited the narrative at the moment, I think. But the other is a Chinese passport, which pops up at the end as kind of like this ending message. It's like a picture of a passport and then some some Chinese text starts to get written across it, and um, they don't subtitle that part. Uh, and so it was simplified Chinese, and it was in a funny script, so I couldn't really read it. I had to look it up later. But it's basically saying, like, you know, China strives to protect your Chinese nationality abroad or, you know, this, this kind of thing. And uh, one of the characters in one of the smaller roles in the film, you know, he, he's kind of this character who's portrayed as this overseas Chinese who's rejected his his Chinese heritage until he suddenly needs it, right? Because things are, the, the craps hit the fan and, and suddenly he needs to get to the embassy. And so, you know, uh, he needs to be Chinese again is kind of the idea. And I know that this can be a bit prickly because there have been, you know, political things in the news about what is it, you know, what does it mean to be Chinese if you have an overseas passport and but you were born in China and, and that kind of stuff. So that can probably be seen as a sort of very, very political statement right there at the end. But that's, again, right there at the end. I mean, there's not really anything else going on movie-wise. It's just text on the screen and the image. Um, so, you know, for that reason, I think this being about Wu Jing himself, his character, Long Fang, um, they do come back to this idea of what do you fight for, but there are no patches here, like we're in the first film, where they have a patch that very specifically says what you fight for. Um, and the China flag, as I said, is, is more of a means to an end. So is it pro-China? Yeah, but I mean, it's also it also shows some Chinese in a bad light. 
you know? So, you know, there are bad Chinese, there are good Chinese. Um, there are bad Africans, there are good Africans. Um, I think it's pretty balanced in what it's doing, much more so than, than the first film. Um, and there is a mid-credit scene that you'll want to stay for at the end, which I think, if I recall, it happens after the outtakes. Um, so you want to stay for that, and that sets up part three, <laughs> of course. And I say bring it, um, especially if it's going to be as, as you know, have high, as high a production value as, as this one does. So it's interesting to see what this does, and, um, you know, it will be interesting to see what they do because the kind of the narrative through plot for this film that they end up tagging off of in this mid credit scene. I'm, you know, if they follow that out to its conclusion, it's kind of going to negate some of the character development that this film tries to achieve, which is kind of weird, but it's also very much what happens in pretty much every James Bond film and some of the Bourne films. So again, it's action or status quo when you compare this up against um, Hollywood fare. So overall, I, it's short. And, uh, sorry, it's not short. It's two plus, uh, two, or two plus hours. Um, but in short, it's big, it's fun, it's not perfect, but go see it. Wow. But <laughs> from what I hear about the super pro Chinese stuff, it sounds like it, it takes it even to a bigger scale than sort of the, the, the display that the first film had, at least from sort of some of the bigger moments that it showed. I mean, there was something about Chinese embassy being like wide open for everyone, which is totally unreal. That's what I heard. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, but as a, as a, as a narrative part point in a film, would you say, you know, could you say that about any, any embassy? I mean, yeah. Would the Chinese, would the Chinese embassy suddenly take in refugees of non-Chinese people? If there's this, you know, if there's this death and devastation going on, in a in a right, but, in a perfect movie world, why not? Well, but then what I hear is that first they had to go and 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 mock the U.S. embassy for having no one and refuse to take phone calls, and then Chinese embassy, oh, it's yeah. open and yeah. welcomes everyone. Like that kind of that kind of like it's not only like pro-China, it also has to put down other countries in order to prop I don't, up China. You right? know, I, and here I'm sitting in the United States watching this. I didn't see it as a put down. Um, the way they structure it in the narrative, I think if you follow the narrative, it's biased, yeah, because it's a China film, but I don't think it's unfair. It, it's not really saying that, you know, um, it, I just felt that the way they said it in the film, it's like, you know, oh, I tried to call the embassy, I, I didn't get an answer, you know, or something like that. And then um, there's a line where I think the naval commander says the UN ordered everybody out all the ships to dis disembark and they were on their way out and we were on our way in you know so there's nobody and and china's like it's kind of it's kind of like a fall of saigon kind of thing you know it's like they're the last bastion is that possible yeah why not i didn't really it didn't really come across to me as as a mark against the u.s per se it was just more of a narrative well they're gone we're not kind of a thing okay. um I don't know. You you might read it differently when you see it, and I'll be interested to hear your take on it when you see it. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there there are there's an undercurrent here of Chinese protectionism. You know, we're China, we can protect you. This kind of thing because they have a big presence in Africa. But again, it's no more different than I would think you would see in a lot of the old actioners, especially like you know Chuck Norris films of the 
90s and stuff where, you know, Americans abroad and we'll protect you, that kind of thing. That kind of undercurrent is there in a lot of action films. Um, yeah, but the difference is that Chuck Norris films were mocked and they weren't taken seriously. This film is <laughs> made $700 million with a lot of strong strong critic i mean supportive voice on the chinese internet thinking that it's like it's like it's it's uh it's star wars or something well, <laughs> like, you know, I, maybe i can't i can't really speak to that part of it i just felt that when i watched the first one the first one felt like very much uh rah-rah patriotism this is china you know you don't belong here we're china we're not going to let you do this kind of a thing for me that message was much it felt much more in my face than in this film, with the exception of, again, these two scenes, one involving a Chinese flag and the other, the very end thing um, with this this passport thing. But other than that, I mean, it's really just Wu Jing going around and, and kicking butt. And it's if that's the kind of thing you want to look forward to, again, it's great. And it's, it's pretty easy to, I think, uh, get past those other parts if you think those are things that are going to bug you. I was just really impressed, again, with the scale, the scope, and primarily seeing the growth of Wu Jing as a director, um, particularly between, you know, comparing this film with something like Legendary Assassin. I think if, you know, if this is really a majority of him and his doing, um, and maybe you'll know something to the contrary, you know, it's, he's not ghost directing or something. Um, you know, this is him, this is his company. He's really got a place for this going forward compared with other action directors out there that, that we see doing stuff. Um, because he's got a good attention to detail. They do a couple scenes are a little bit CG at times, but I mean nothing that's overly distractive. A lot of it is practical, and um, it looks really good. I would say so. I was I was very impressed coming out overall. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. Find us on Twitter, twitter.com at concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I'd urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing, be it writing articles or translation work or whatever else he may be doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Um, well, you can at least first visit the AsiaInCinema.com. That's my news website. I promise when all this dies down, I'll try to be back to writing. Um uh, yeah, you can also follow the Facebook page and Twitter account. They're both Asia in Cinema. Um, if you search for those on Facebook or Twitter, you should be able to find it. Um, you can follow me on on Twitter, where I'm a lot more active. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Um, I am also the entertainment editor on Discovery and Silk Road magazines, so you can read those if you're on um, Cathay Pacific or Cathay Dragon Airlines. You can also visit... Uh, Discovery, um, 
sorry, CathayPacific.com slash discovery to read some of the in-flight entertainment content that I create for the magazine. But we're kind of thinking some new stuff up for starting in September. So uh, I can give you more details when when they, they are actually revealed. But uh, yeah, you can also email me at Kevin at AsiaInCinema.com. All right. And as always, please do check out our friends over at the podcast on Fire Network as well. Our next episode, uh, episode 238. Um, still not exactly sure what's going to be on my agenda, but I think, Kevin, you had mentioned possibly talking about Bad Genius. Yes, yes. Looks like because Naga Pearl came out, but it's only like two shows a day. I'm going to be at the uh, Summer Cine Fan Festival all weekend. I'm not sure if I'll get to watch Gintama. So, and Bad Genius is one of my favorite Asian films of the year, so I'd be happy to talk about that for the next episode. Yeah, I don't think we're getting that here yet. Um, I may We may be getting some screenings of Naga Pearls, but I'm uh, not sure I'm make it, I, if I'll make it to those or not. But it'll either be that or I'll be talking about uh, Toilet, Ek, Prem, Katha, um, one of those two films. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying... Never crash into a pit of quarantined corpses. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Ah.